As was said, we're going to be in Romans 16th chapter. This incredible study that we've been in for several months now is coming to a close. And uh, here we have in this 16th chapter, we have Paul's final instructions, we have closing admonitions uh, and individual greetings. And there are 26 different people, I think that count is right, in these verses. So out of this chapter, there's a lot of greetings. There's a lot of things um, and not a whole lot of content per se. So that leaves me a lot of latitude here. <laughs> so I hope you will indulge me just a little bit. Uh, before we get to the 16th chapter, there's a subject that pertains to Romans that's been, that's been talked about a little bit in the 14th chapter. But I would like to mention it tonight just for a moment before we get to 16. And, and chapter 16 will bring up more of that as well. But the topic I'm talking about is the gentle way that Paul addresses the church at Rome compared to other letters. That doesn't mean that he doesn't call evil out. That doesn't mean that he doesn't tell them what's right and what's wrong. He does. But his, he wants to go there. He made that very plain from the onset. I long to see you, the very first, that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift to the end you may be established. This, but he longed to go. He had never been and wanted to go. Wanted to go badly. It took four years after he was promised it would go some four years in captivity. And then when he did go to preach the gospel in Rome, he went in chains. Not exactly the way we would expect. But he had a very gentle tone when he talked this, in this letter. And some of the same things were being done in other congregations that he did not use that tone in. And it's so interesting to me, one of my favorite things, uh, there were some differences there. As churches are different, as congregations are different, then certainly his tone and his manner that he talked was different. Consider 1 Corinthians. The problems that they had in the church at Corinth were too numerous to name. So that was different. And you just listed some of them here, and we, we all know what they were. They were horrendous, some of them. So he had a different way of talking to them. Colossians, Colossians 2 and 16, he said, Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or respect of a holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. These same things were being done in the church at Rome. They were caused by the Judaizers. They followed Paul around. They followed the apostles around, attempting to teach and to require that Christian churches also include elements of the old law in order to be justified. But Paul addresses the problem of Jewish influence in every epistle because there were varying degrees of acceptance of the Jews' teaching of new moons, of holiday, meat and drink, and all those things, circumcision, all those things. But the tone that he uses in Rome was gentle toward Rome. 
So I would like for us to consider just for a minute the differences, the highlight, the different tone between his letter to the church at Rome and the letter to the church at the Galatians. Look a little bit, Galatians 1. And Aaron talked about some of this too when he covered the 14th chapter of Romans. Galatians 1, notice the tone, verse 6, I marvel that you are so soon, you are turning away so soon from him who called you into the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel of heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. And then he repeats it again. As I've said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel than that which you have received, let him be accursed. There's not anything gentle about that. And he needed to be that way. I'm not saying that he didn't. He did, but it was just different. The church at Rome was different, so it was handled differently. Continuing on there, verse, uh, the fourth chapter. The fourth chapter there in verse 9, continuing this same type of tone. Paul said, but now, after you have known God, again, this Jewish influence he's addressing here. Again, after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? Notice you observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. Strong language. Fifth chapter of Galatians, verse 4. You have become estranged from Christ. You who, are, who attempt to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything, but faith working through love. You ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion does not come from him who calls you a little leaven, leaveneth the whole lump. Then this contrast is highlighted when we get to Romans 14. What's he say? Receive one who is weak in the faith. But not to, not to doubtful disputations, King James, but not to disputes over doubtful things, New King James. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat. And let not him who does not eat judge him who eats. Condemn him who eats, for God has received him. Who are you to judge another's, brother, another's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. Verse 5, one person esteems one day above another. Galatians, he said, you observe days and weeks and months and years, and I worry about you. Here he says, one person esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord, and he who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks, and he who does not eat, to the Lord, he does not eat and gives God thanks. On down to verse 14, that same chapter. I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. 
Verse 15, yet if your brother is greed because of your food, you're no longer walking in love. On down to verse 21, it's neither good, it's good neither to eat meat nor drink wine nor do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. This weakness tone is being mindful of him, being loving toward that weaker brother. It's neither good or to eat meat nor drink wine or do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. Do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. Well, I can do that because the Bible doesn't tell me that I can't. And if it offends somebody, that's on them. That's tough. We have, we have an attitude. We've heard that attitude. Sometimes we have that ourselves. But we can actually condemn ourselves by doing something that's lawful. If we do that, and in doing so, offending a brother, and we understand that, and we do it anyway. Verse 29, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he does not eat from faith. For whatever is not from faith is from sin. Okay, let's compare. Side by side, let's look. Galatians 4, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements? That's after the first chapter tells you, though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. He continues that, chapter 4. How is it you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements? to which you desire again to be in bondage. You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid for you, lest I have labored in vain. Romans 14 and two. For one believes they may eat all things, but he is, who is weak eats only vegetables. One person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. What's the difference? Why does they handle them differently? Continue on in Galatians 5, verse 4. You who attempt to be justified by the law. There we get a hint. You who attempt to be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. Continuing on in Romans, continuing with verse 5, he said, let each be fully convinced in his own mind. Does that mean if I do something unlawful, but I'm fully convinced that it's not, that it is lawful, that makes it lawful? Not exactly. That's not what he's saying. But he is saying that there are things that we can disagree on. There are things that are not doctrine. That you can fervently believe that I might fervently believe they're wrong. I can't do those for me. Continuing on Romans 14 and 14. I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus Christ that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. To me, that's one of the fascinating things that was unique about the church in Rome compared to other churches. They did many of the things. They had the same Jewish influences. They were not making them law. They were considered matters of personal opinion, and they were not being condemned for that. That doesn't mean that all their personal opinions were correct. There are things that we cannot disagree on. There are matters of salvation and matters of doctrine that we cannot disagree on, but there are a variety of things that we can. Non-binding 
issues. Notice the difference in the tone. In Galatians, he said you, referring to all the churches in Galatians this epistle was written to. You all as a whole turn again to the wickedly, beggarly elements of the world, which you desire to be in bondage. The entire churches in that area were all doing that. And they were requiring that. You observe days, not isolated people in the congregation, but you are making it mandatory to observe days and months and seasons. I'm afraid for you, all of you, all of the churches in Galatia. I'm afraid for all of you. Galatians 5, 4, you all who attempt to be justified by faith, you've fallen from grace. Attempting to be, to impose these requirements of the old law and make them a condition of salvation is the reason Paul stepped up his rhetoric, his, his talk toward them, warning them of, of the wrong path that they were going down. On the other hand, Romans says, for one believes him may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. One person esteems one day above another. Another person esteems every day alike. The Jews and the Gentiles. And, and, then, and then there were some among the the Gentiles. Apparently, we had a, a group of, of Gentiles who liked to eat only vegetables and required that you could only eat vegetables. That person is weak, according to, to Romans 14th chapter. Okay, but then you also had the Jews who believed that there were a number of things under the old law that you couldn't eat. And then you had other Gentiles that wanted to eat everything. So you had all these mixes, but apparently the church at Rome was handling those things in a way that did not make them binding to everyone else. That doesn't mean that the Jews didn't still observe Sabbath. That didn't mean that the Jews still didn't uh, become circumcised, that they didn't observe the Passover, that they didn't do those things that they were doing before. They just didn't try to impose them on everybody else. That's the difference between the, the book of Romans and so many other epistles of Paul where he's having to uh, address these Judaizers who were actually making doctrine where there wasn't any. The churches in Galatia were demanding that Christians also observe the law of Moses in order to be saved. The Roman church, in contrast, was encouraged to continue to recognize and allow for differing individual matters of conscience. As long as those acts were done by faith, with love, and with regard to the weaker brother, with regard to others inside the church and outside the church. Don't do that and cause a stumbling block for those around about us. And that's one of the, one of the important things that Ian's addressing in the hermeneutics is, is the context and, and the, the way that these things are translated to go along with the, the use of these words and, and how the similar uh, actions can produce different results and different teaching. So it's important that we always remember who's writing, where is he writing from, who's he writing to, and if these words are actually gospel or if it's something we can disagree on, something that is not a matter of 
of uh, salvation or, or doctrine. So, thank you for indulging me that little uh, rabbit hole. That brings us to Romans 16. And he says, I commend to you, Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant in the church at Centuria. Centuria is right over across the bay from Athens. So if you think about this sister had gone all the way around the southern tip of Greece, across the Aegean Sea, then all the way around the tip of Rome, because Rome uh, was uh, the tip of Italy to Rome. Rome was over on the west side of the boot of Italy. And this sister, out of 26 people, the sister was mentioned first. We don't know, have, have any idea who this lady is, but she was given a prominent position. It's quite an honor for her to be listed first. I commend to you, Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant of the church of Centuria. And they can't go any farther without addressing the word servant because later translations translate it deacon or deaconess. And it is translated deacon, minister, or servant. The word servant is translated in all three of those different forms. It is translated in specific terms sometimes and in general terms sometimes. Let me give you some examples. Philippians 1, verse 1. Paul and Tim, the Bible says, Paul and Timothy, same writer, Apostle Paul, says, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ to all saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, in Philippi with the bishops and the deacons. Specific use here. Three groups are addressed. This letter was written to the saints, to the bishops and the deacons at Philippi. So that's a specific, the same word. Deacons there is the same one translated servant in Romans 16 and 1. In generic sense, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 5, who then is Paul and who is Apollos, but ministers through whom you believed as the Lord gave these one. Just in a generic sense, Paul said, just as the Lord gave to each one. He's addressing the divisions in Corinth. Some say, I'm of Paul, and I'm of Apollos, and I'm of Cephas. He said, who then is Paul, and who is Apollos? But ministers, but servants. Again, in the generic sense. Another example of generic sense, Jesus said in John 12 and 26, if anyone serves me, same root word, serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. Same word. It's Romans 16 and 1. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. Generic sense and specific sense. Here's another specific sense. Same word. Qualifications of a deacon. 1 Timothy 3 and 12, Paul tells him, let deacons be the husband of one wife ruling their children in their own house as well. So Romans 16 and 1 can't possibly be referring to her, Phoebe, as a deacon of the church, Centuria. It doesn't mean that she didn't have an extremely uh, important, 
valuable uh, role to play and service to provide. So much so that she's listed above 26 other people and greeted first. So Romans 16 and 1 cannot be translated in a way that violates 1 Timothy 3 and 12. Isaiah, we've been studying this over and over again. Line upon line, line upon line, precept upon precept, precept upon precept. Here a little and there a little. These are basic building blocks. They have to fit together. We cannot take one piece of one scripture and, and ignore every other scripture that also deals with that same subject. Phoebe wasn't a deacon, but she was a valuable member, a valuable servant of the Lord in the, in the church at Centuria. A woman can still contribute in amazing, important, notable ways. And that was one thing he was saying there. Part of, the, part of the things that we address when we get into the service of a woman is 1 Timothy 2 and 12. Let a woman learn in silence with all subjection, and I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over man, but to be in silence, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. There are denominations of the Lord's church and, and many denominations who take this to mean that a, a man can never work for a woman. They take this passage to mean that all women must be submissive to all men because it never men mentions husband and wife in all things. I think we understand this, that it only applies in the church. If it doesn't, then I couldn't work for a woman. If it doesn't, Ian could bring his jeans to Darlis and said, I need heavy starch and a crease down the middle. I'll be back in a couple of hours. We understand that that would, good luck with that. But if women are be, to be submissive to men, and that applies everywhere as this church, as some churches believe, then we can't do that. A 12, 10-year-old, a boy who is baptized, his grandmother can spank that boy. If this applies in all locations, the grandmother can spank that boy, but she can't pray in his presence. That's not what the Bible says. What does it say? Well, there's a parallel passage, 1 Corinthians 14, 34. It tells us where this applies and why. Well, we know part of it because Adam was formed first, then Eve. But 1 Corinthians 14, verse 34, so let your women keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but they are to be submissive, same word, Submission, submissive, as the law also says. And if they want to learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for, it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. This is not a reference to all women and all men. This is a reference to husbands and wives. Not all women being subjective to all men. A group of teenagers meeting at McDonald's for a meal, the women have to be submissive to the men? That's not what that says. That's difficult for women a lot of times to pray 
when men are present. I never heard my mom pray until I was probably in my 40s. Some of you probably the same way. Never heard that. But there, and there, some are still uncomfortable doing that, fine. They shouldn't be, they can't be forced. There are matters of conscience, and if they don't want to do that, that's, that's fine. We have to respect that. But to say that a woman can't pray, can't do anything that a man can do outside the church, outside of the assembly, okay? As the law says, there are certain things that were carried over from the old law to the new law. There were certain things that were not. Most were not, but there were a few things that were, and this is one of them. So whatever law for women was good before the law of Moses is good now. It says, let your women keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak, but they are to be submissive as the law also says. Okay, what did women do under the old law? You have Deborah for one, she was a prophetess and she judged Israel. She ruled Israel and she prophesied. Okay, another example, Hulda, 2 Kings 22. This is the passage John read Sunday. Talked about Josiah and he was a young king and he ruled for a few years and then he wanted to, to upgrade the temple. Wanted to do some repairs and do some things. So he sent those people up there and they found the book, the law, and started reading it and they read it to him. 2 Kings 22 and 11 says, now it happened when the king heard the words of the book of the law that he tore his clothes. Then the, the king commanded Hilkiah, the priest, Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, Akbor, the son of Micaiah, Shaphan the scribe, and Aziah, a servant of the king, saying, I know I butchered those names. I'll butcher some more here shortly. He said, go, inquire of the Lord for me, for the people and all, excuse me, inquire for the Lord for me for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is aroused against me because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. Verse 14, so Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam, Akbor, Shaphan, and Isaiah went to Huldah the prophetess. Okay, they went to her. All these men did went to Huldah the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the daughter of Tikvah, the son of Harphus, keeper of the wardrobe. She dwelt in Jerusalem in the second quarter, and they spoke with her. They spoke with her in her house. They went to her house in the second quarter. Verse 15, then she said to him, thus saith the Lord God of Israel. She prophesied to them, didn't she? Tell the man who sent you to me, Again, verse 16, thus saith the Lord, behold, I will bring calamity on this place and on its inhabitants, all the words of the book which the king of Judah has, has read. They, she didn't prophesy in the temple. She didn't prophesy in the public worship, but she prophesied to these men in her home. Okay, how does, okay that's Old Testament money. How about the New Testament? Acts 21 and 8, we have the daughters of Luke. Acts 21 and 8, the Bible says, In the next day we that were of Paul's company departed. That's a group. Luke's one of them. 
we who are of Paul's company departed and came unto Caesar and we uh, Caesarea, and we entered into the house of Philippi the evangelist, which was one of the seven and abode with him. And the same man had four daughters, virgins, which did prophesy. They were in the home of Philip the evangelist. And we don't have any record of them actually prophesying to these men, but we know that they did prophesy. And it's safe to assume that they didn't have to rely on secondhand information to know that they did prophesy. In all likelihood, they also prophesied to Paul and his company in the house of their father. So these passages of scripture apply in the assembly. These passages of scripture, it doesn't mean that a woman must do that. Some women, our women have not been brought up to do that. And many women are not comfortable doing that. But many young fathers are teaching their daughters to pray publicly. Many, and rightfully so. Doesn't mean they have to, but if it's a service that they want to do, they certainly shouldn't be prevented from doing so. That's all addressed in the first few verses. He's repeating there, verse 7, I commend to you, Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant of the church in Centuria, that you may receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and the sister in whatever business she has need of you. For indeed, she has been a helper of many and of myself also. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Jesus Christ who risked their own necks for my life to whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Again, these, this couple was listed right behind Phoebe and notice who's named first there. Priscilla is named before her husband. Now, if you go through the book of Acts, and we're, we'll get there in just a second, Aquila is mentioned first. But here, Paul gives her the honor of being listed first in this. And that is, on a public uh, letter like this, that is a great honor that Paul is bestowing upon Phoebe and Priscilla. And they obviously risk their own neck. We don't know if that's putting themselves on the chopping block, on the executioner's block to save him, but they definitely risk their own lives for Paul. Here's the account of them, of the service that they pulled, uh, that they uh, rendered in Acts 18 chapter, the account we have there of Aquila and Priscilla, starting in the 24th verse. The Bible says, Now a certain Jew named Apollos, born of Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the Scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he desired to cross to Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. For he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. 
Aquila and Priscilla took this mighty man, the scriptures, took him aside privately and expounded the gospel unto him more perfectly, and the results were immediate. You, you have to commend Apollos for allowing that to happen, and you also have to commend Aquila and his wife Priscilla. That was some instruction that they rendered to, a, to an evangelist who was preaching, and the results showed themselves very quickly. The New Testament teaches that just like the old law, outside the assembly, women may supervise, may instruct, may pray, or do anything that a man can do. Doesn't mean they have to. It means if they so desire, they can do that. Continuing on Romans 3. Greek Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Jesus Christ, who risked their own necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Likewise, greet the church that is in their house. The church was even meeting. The church, historians tell us it was the third century before there were any buildings of assembly before it came legal enough to do that. Early on, we're told that Christians would go to the synagogue or to the temple and would have on Saturday and participate in Sabbath and stay over the night and have worship services on Sunday the next day. But after the persecution got so, so intense, they couldn't do that and the scriptures are very plain that they met in homes. And not only did they meet, the church at Rome met in their house. But 1 Corinthians 16, verse 19. This, was, this letter was written, of course, Corinth was written from Ephesus. And it says, 19th verse, the churches of Asia salute you. Aquila and Priscilla salute you much in the Lord with the church that is in their house. So these people were wealthy, seemed to have homes, not only in Rome, but also in Ephesus where 1 Corinthians was written. And the church was meeting at their homes, large, uh, large enough to handle that number of people. It's... We might make a little side note. 1 Corinthians 11 said, What? Have you not houses to eat and drink in? This is the same letter that tells us that they were meeting in homes. So if we think that we can't eat, and there's some who feel in their heart, they don't feel right about eating in the fellowship hall or in the church building, that's their call. They get to do that. If they do, they think it's wrong and they do it, then it's sin to them. And they don't make an issue. We've never had an issue with our fellowship hall. But some people, especially a few years back, it was very common for people to not want to eat. And there are, there are uh, brethren uh, and, and con congregations of the Lord's Church that do not allow fellowships hall, fellowship halls. There are uh, congregations of the Lord's Church that will not fellowship with people who make it a practice to eat in the church building. Back to our text. 
We'll cover a lot of ground here reading these names, so I know we're really behind on the time, but it'll, the rest will go fairly quickly. Verse 5, continuing on in verse 5, said, Greet my beloved Epinatus, who is the first fruits, first fruits of Achaia to Christ. Greet Mary, who labored much with us. Greet Adriconicus and Junia, my countrymen and my fellow prisoners, who are of note among the apostles, who also were in Christ before me. Greet Amplius, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, my fellow worker in Christ, and Stachys, my beloved. Greet Apelles, approved of Christ. Greet those who are of the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my countrymen. Greet those who are of the household of Narcissus, who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa. I've highlighted them because their names actually mean, make sure I get this right, their names mean dainty and delicate. Again, we have women being mentioned as prominent and, and serving in such amazing capacities that these tiny ladies apparently also did an incredible job. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa who have labored in the Lord. Greet the beloved Persis who labored much in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord and his mother and mine. Greet Asan, I'll never forget that, Phlegian, Hermas, <laughs> Petrobus, Hermes, and the brethren who are with them. Greet Phil Philologus and Julia. Nereus, they're spelled a little different in the New King James. So I studied a lot of these in the King James, and they're a little different in the New King James. Greet Philologus and Julia, Nereus and his sister in Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. We've heard lessons on greeting each other. We've heard lessons many great lessons on uh, the greetings that we give one another and how that begins uh, an area, a, a time of, of uh, love and cherishing and fellowship if that greeting is done in a way that, uh, that promotes that love with one another. Greet one another with a holy kiss and the churches of Christ greet you. The name of our of this congregation at this place and many other all, all over the world use this. I know it's used kind of in a generic sense here, but I don't think we could, if we had to put a name up front, we could certainly stand on this verse uh, to support that. Verse 17, now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses, some final instructions. Note them. You're contrary to the doctrine which you learned and avoid them. So again, he's not overlooking things when he says, receive one who is weak, not to doubtful disputations. When he's telling them to receive the weaker brother, we're not talking about people who make offenses. We're not talking about those who are causing divisions. Verse 18, for those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly and by smooth words and flattering speech deceive the hearts of the simple. For your obedience has become known to all. There's that terrible word again, obedience. Therefore, I'm glad on your behalf, but I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil. Just some final reminders that he goes through as this amazing book comes to a close. Verse 20, and the will and the God of peace 
will crush Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Verse 21. Timothy, my fellow worker, and Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater, my countrymen, greet you. I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, greet you in the Lord. So Paul had a scribe, if you will, write this letter for him. And continuing on, verse 23, Gaius, my host and the host of the whole church. So I don't think the whole church was staying there, but they were certainly welcome. They were uh, certainly there on occasion. Said the whole church greets you. Erastus, the treasurer of the city, greets you. And Cordus, a brother. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you, with you all. Amen. Verse 25, to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith. This amazing epistle that is used as the cornerstone for the doctrine of salvation by faith only. This amazing book actually starts and ends by stressing the importance of obedience to the faith among all nations. You've heard it said before, and we're saying it again now. It's that salutation hadn't even concluded his salutations, Romans 1 and 5, though we, through him, we have received grace and apostleship for Obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. Then Romans 16 and 25, but now made manifest by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith. We all know we can't earn it. We understand we're not saved by obedience, but we can't be saved without it. God's grace depends that that faith is an active faith. God's grace depends on that active, obedient, generous faith. We all know that. I'm preaching to the choir here. Finally, verse 27, to God alone wise, be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. I'll quit there. Thank you for indulging me. Uh, I hate to leave this book behind. Um, but we have concluded it. We will, Ian will start us in John next week, a little different from the other books of the gospel. The synoptics are called Matthew, Mark, and Luke are referred to as the synoptics because they follow a same general timeline. John is a little different. Looking forward to that. So the study of John will start next week. We'll close there, but we never want to end without extending an invitation to anyone that might have a need. If there's a gospel subject in the audience tonight, please come forward. Let your wishes be known as we stand and sing.